Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Quentin Crude. We're the editors of Film Comment. As the United States celebrated yet another year around the sun this Sunday, we invited critic A.S. Hamra to hold forth on the varied, colorful, and sometimes bleak visions of America on the screen. We asked him to pick some movies that evoke the stars and the stripes or the spirit of 76 or what have you, and Scott responded with 13 picks, one for each of the original colonies. Each of his choices, including The Wolf of Wall Street, Kajillionaire, Good Time, Leave No Trace, Class Relations, and Trash Humpers, sparked a spirited conversation about the state of the nation. We added in some of our own picks, John Sales's The Brother from Another Planet, Lizzie Borden's Born in Flames, and more. Thank you for listening, and may God bless America. Welcome to our special Happy Birthday America edition 4th of July episode of the Film Comment Podcast. As a guest today, we have A.S. Hamra. Do you want to introduce yourself, Scott? I'm A.S. Hamra. I'm the film critic for The Baffler and the author of the book The Earth Dies Streaming, which is a collection of my work that was published by N Plus One Books. And I, I recently did an interview with Abel Ferrara that was on Screen Slate. Great interview. Highly recommend. Thank you. And Scott, you're a true patriot, correct? No, no. <laughs> yeah, you had a pretty strong reaction to this prompt when you when we wrote to you about it. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what it brought up for you? Well, I, I am sick of, of the U.S. I'm sick of America. I want out. So when you ask me to talk about, you know, what does America mean to me through, uh, you know, the cinema, the films that came to mind for, for me are just films that are about dysfunction and failure and ripoffs and uh, terrible sadness and, and uh, a country without hope, you know, expressed different ways by different, by different filmmakers. So I selected 13 films, you know, because there were 13 original colonies and it's the 4th of July. So I, I selected 13 films, 12 American films, and one German film. And the films that I picked, I'll just read the list, uh, you, know, uh, you know, quickly, and then we could talk about them. The syllabus, as it were. It's kind of like the syllabus, but, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't mean to make the syllabus. So the, and the list is alphabetical. I put, it, I put it in alphabetical order. So the first one is Ace in the Hole by Billy Wilder with Kirk Douglas from 1951. And the second one is Before the Devil Knows You're Dead by Sidney Lumet from 2007 with Philip Seymour Hoffman and Ethan Hawke. And then Bless Their Little Hearts, the Billy Woodbury uh, L.A. Rebellion film that Charles Burnett also worked on from 1984. Blue Velvet, of course, I think is kind of the, you know, kind of a blatant example of what I'm talking about. Then Good Time by Josh uh, and Benny Safdie. Hustle by Robert Aldrich with Burt Reynolds and Catherine Deneuve. Kajillionaire, Miranda July's film from last year, which I think is really underrated. And Deborah Granick's Leave No Trace, Stuck by Stuart Gordon. Some, I told someone I was going to mention these films uh, the other day, and he said, oh, they mentioned Stuck by Stuart Gordon on the New Beverly podcast the other day. I, did, I didn't know about that, but I think everyone should see Stuck. It's one of the craziest films I've ever seen, and it's totally about America. I read the description because yeah. I hadn't seen it before, and it okay. sounds completely... It's, it stars Mina Suvari and Stephen Ray, and Stephen Ray plays 
a guy who's lost his job and lost his apartment, who uh, is struck by a car that Mina Suvari is driving and gets stuck in the windshield. Instead of helping him, she parks him in her garage overnight. And then I selected Trash Trash Humpers, Trash Humpers by Harmony Corrine. The classic. Yeah. Wanda by Barbara Loden. The Wolf of Wall Street. And uh, Class Relations by Jean-Mary Straub and Danielle Wielay, which is their version of Franz Kafka's novel America that was made in black and white in 1984 and shot in Germany, not in the U.S., except for there's two shots made in the U.S. They're both they're both long tracking shots. One's of the Statue of Liberty in the harbor in New York City, and the other is a very long tracking shot of the Missouri River seen from a train that I think I think those... I think those shots influenced the movie Dead Man by Jim Jarmusch, but that's that's kind of just, you know, a factoid. Anyway, so th- those 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 13 films to me represent the dysfunctionality and despair of contemporary America, even though they were made between 1951 and today. So this is not the most interesting film in this list, according to me. Um, so we don't have to dwell too much on it. But I was fascinated that you picked Kajillionaire and... It also made me think of something. One thing that does feel uh, particular to America is this like disjunct between the myth and image of America all over the world that, you know, is aggressively popularized and propagandized and the realities that sort of get swept under. So Kajillionaire, I thought was very interesting because in my like second year of college or something. I was in LA for a few months for an internship. It was my first time on the West Coast. And I remember describing, you know, experiencing LA for the first time and describing describing it to my father. Uh, and especially talking about, for instance, areas like Skid Row. And, you know, I was doing a, a, a project and I uh, volunteered at some homeless shelters and I was talking about this stuff. And he was so shocked. He said, wait, there are poor people in America? And it's not like he didn't know that poverty existed, but that that kind of poverty existed, he actually could not picture it. He thought like modern day America doesn't have people on the streets, you know? That, uh, class relations and and at least America, the novel is sort of like yeah. is something like that in that it's a it's a novel about America by somebody who's never been America been to America and has is completely just like making everything up. But it's like the with Kajillionaire, it's because I don't know, the movie manages to imbibe some of that candy-coated image of America as a place of, like, wonder and mobility, but the story remains so dark and pathetic. I don't know, there's that... It it walks that line so well, and that, like, kind of disenchantment, and especially it being L.A., you know, this enchanting city in America that, that people all over the world know through images... It brought up that memory for me, and I thought that was a, a an un, unexpected pick. Well, okay, I, I think I think Kajillionaire was a very underrated movie last year, and I think Miranda July keeps getting better as a filmmaker. And um, that film is a so America is just a shell now, right? But the myths that you you talk about your father kind of uh, inhabiting. It's like a shell that he inhabits and people all over the world inhabit. But it's not based on any kind of contemporary reality at all. It's based on the past and it's based on media images. It's not even based on movie images anymore. So, so in that film, which is a great L.A. film, you know, 
uh, uh, several of these films are LA films. It, it, it's a very dark film, and it's it's a it's a film about something that is is kind of buried in the film, which is how America has become a gerontocracy. And in 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 Kajillionaire, the parents are totally ripping off the daughter, who thinks that she's in on the scam, right? It, it's kind of an example. You know, we were talking before we started recording about Lauren Berlant and um, Cruel Optimism. It's kind of a film that embodies her theories in some ways. So it, it has a terrible. I don't. I don't know if we should talk about the ending of the film or not. Uh, do you guys do that, or do we do that on here? I don't know. Yes, yes. absolutely. <laughs> okay. Well, it basically ends with their parents, who are played by Richard Jenkins and uh, Deborah Winger, stealing everything from the life of their daughter and their daughter and uh, their daughter's girlfriend who are played by Evan Rachel Wood and uh, Gina Rodriguez. And uh, it, it's just a movie about how in America, the the older generations, you know, the baby boomers and generations before that, have left nothing for their children. And in fact, are, are implicating their children in a con and a ripoff that is just based on nothing. And the way that the characters live in the film is really really amazing that she was able to capture this so well because they're scammers who live in an apartment they only pay $500 for but the apartment is attached to a factory and every day soap comes cascading down the one of the walls of their apartment which is an old office space and they have to be there so they can clean the soap off the walls or they won't be able to live there and that's a great image because at first it feels like something fairy tale like and then you realize that it's actually extremely gross and sad yeah and they're trapped you know they're right. trapped in this schedule you know so so that to me was a really amazing film and of course no one really cared about any films that came out in 2020 i mean 2020 is like a lost year of films so so all the good films that came out that were not big blockbusters it's like people don't even know about them and, you know, Kajillionaire is one of those films. And uh, I really thought it was great. And it really captures the present in a, in a way that, um, you know, other films don't. And it's, you know, it's terribly bleak. And, but, it, but it's so original. It's so, so novel. And all, everyone is so good in it. And, and yet they're all detestable people, you know. Although she doesn't present them as specifically detestable, you know. And just the way that L.A. looks in that film is so amazing. You know, people all over the world should see that film. It's interesting you were talking about Franz Kafka in America and the Strobe Wille uh, film of it, because that film actually has kind of a happy ending, you know, and, and, and because the character goes west to join the nature theater of Oklahoma, which in the Strobe Wille film kind of seems like maybe that means the Hollywood or the movies or the cinema, or maybe it just means like manifest destiny and like the, the terribleness of, of all that kind of thing. It is like this myth, American uh, westward ho, American expansion myth in the in the novel too, as I remember it. It's just sort of right. this. It's like a theater, you know. But and it's like Buffalo Bill's Wild West theater, you know. It's the same sort of thing where there's this. It's this empty myth, but that fiction is. It's not quite that clear in the in Kafka anyway. Right, the Buffalo Bill, and the Altman's Buffalo Bill and the Indians uh, from 1976 is also a good, a good re real America. What America means to me, you know solitary poor nasty brutish and short type of movie too yeah definitely i mean paul newman is that's his best performance in movies maybe as buffalo bill and he plays this totally disreputable horrible person in that just like you know? a bad guy yeah yeah no, that's a that's a good one for sure but uh do you want to talk a little bit more about class relations it's sort of an outlier in this list and 
Yeah, and also tell tell us a little what what happens um, just for listeners who haven't seen it. It's about a young man who moves from Germany to America on a steamship and arrives in New York and then meets some relatives relatives of his who all start to exploit him in various ways by making him be their servant until he finally, you know, leaves them to join what's called the Nature Theater of Oklahoma. Or in the strobe we lay film, this called the Great Theater of Oklahoma. And, you know, it's shot in this very austere style. It's black, black and white. And, you know, the camera doesn't move very much. And, uh, you know, it's beautifully composed. But it's 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 a very odd film. And what it's saying about America is hard to comprehend or or disentangle in a way. But I wanted to I wanted to include a film that takes place in America, but was not made in America or shot in America and not made by Americans. Wait, it, so it's shot in Germany? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's two shots were made in the U.S., one of the Statue of Liberty and that I described before in one of the Missouri River. And it, it's like Dancer in the Dark, which is another great uh, dysfunctional America film. Or Dogville, another. another yeah. yeah, it wasn't shot in the U.S. either. And of course, in Dancer in the Dark, you know, Bjork's character is someone who has murdered her landlord, who is also a cop and now has and now has is facing the death penalty. So it's a very timely film from. 21 years ago uh i considered including dancer in the dark i also considered including samuel fuller films like the naked kiss and white dog as this kind of dysfunctional uh, american nightmare the films that i picked i didn't want to pick anything that transcended itself because of its director necessarily what do you mean by that i mean certain directors like samuel fuller no matter how bleak the, their presentation of america is like in shot corridor you know, it has this very sad ending, you know, that this year's winner of the Pulitzer Prize is an insane death mute. But be because of Fuller's exuberance and, you know, I don't know what else to call it, his genius, the, the films have a euphoric quality right. that, that, transcends, yeah. that, that transcends the American scene. Whereas the, the films I picked, I didn't want to pick ones that had that so much. I wanted to pick ones that wallowed in the problems that they were presenting more, you know, yeah. without without being able to solve them. But that's what a film like Good Time is like, you know, Definitely. It, it, it's an exuberant film in, in a Fullerian way almost. But it also is mired in something that has no good way out. And the, and the last scene of that movie is so heart is so heartbreaking, you know. With the uh, with the character played by Benny Safdie uh, by himself now because his brother, you know, has gotten arrested. I was surprised that you didn't pick uh, the sweet smell of success. I was thinking, when you know, be, be, because it's too stylized and self consciously cool. I mean, I love that movie, but you know, um, it's just too. It's too much of a. It's. I, you I, went, I didn't you want went to... for L.A. You like what? Are well, there any no, New York well, be... movies? Well, before the devil knows your dad is one of the great New York movies, really. And the Wolf of Wall Street. And good the Wolf time of Wall Street. Is, isn't Good Time set in New York too? And Good Time too, yes. That's and right. I think Good Time is a very good New York movie. Oh um, yeah. As I said, as I said that, I realized we just were talking about Good Time. Mm -hmm. which, but you yeah. know, I didn't want to pick anything that I felt like was like a Criterion Collection movie, which is like Sweet Smell of Success. I mean, Wanda, you chose Wanda's is a Criterion Collection. It movie, is. I, oh, I guess yeah. I didn't know that. But I know what you mean. Like, there's a certain respectability to critique that can defang it, you know? And so movies that seem very much, seem to make like a spectacle of this kind of national critique somehow don't sting as much. Exactly. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have picked Nashville, for instance, 
but right. Buffalo Bill and the Indians works. But so so Hustle, which is one of the films I picked right. by Robert Hustle Hull. is a surprise too. And that as you're describing it, I was thinking like, why Hustle then? Be, well, because it's, it's that's another LA film. Burt Reynolds and Paul Winfield play vice cops in it. And Burt is a, a vice cop who's in love with a prostitute played by Catherine Deneuve. The film is very sleazy and, uh, you know, very not cool in a way. It has it has an all-star cast. It's got Burt Reynolds and Eddie. I mean, it's got uh, Eddie Albert and Ernest Borgnine and Ben Johnson is in it and uh, Eileen Brennan. But um, it's it's not a film that would seem it's not like a fuller film. It's too dark. And it has a very unhappy ending. And um, it's just not something that seems easy to put into a category of like a 70s new Hollywood noir or something, even though that's what it is. And its portrayal of L.A. is so so bleak. It's the opposite of Kajillionaire because it's about it's about like real crime as opposed to the petty crimes in Kajillionaire. It just seems like it can't be made into an object of something that's just for film buffs. It, it's, it goes beyond that in a way that I think a lot of people would find unpleasant. I mean, I think Trash Humpers is also like you're describing. Yes. Like something well, that's, that's like definitely. unidentifiable and cannot. Yeah. I was also, I mean, this is a movie that's been debated and talked about so much. Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, I was curious why you added it and how you think of it as representing America. I... I remember when I first watched it like that many years ago, I was really put off by the display of excess and its abrasiveness and its crassness. Um, In those days, I used to read Time magazine a lot. It was like the only American magazine that I used to subscribe to. And Richard Corliss wrote this takedown of Wolf of Wall Street back then that I very distinctly remembered Corliss saying that DiCaprio and Scorsese had revealed themselves as dupes, the latest in a long line of clever folks swindled by Jordan Belfort. Huh. Yeah. And I just, it's imprinted, this line is imprinted in my mind because, I mean, it just was very formative, but also... How did you feel about that when you read it, like after watching it? Like, did you think that that was an accurate description? What was your thought? When I first watched it, yes. I mean, I was much younger. And like I said, I my just immediate reaction to the film was distaste. And again, I hadn't come here by then. I wasn't in America. So it was, again, this like spectacle that seemed very distant from me. And the only reaction was distaste at just this excess. And I couldn't quite get that layer of critique that some people seem to unearth in it. And so this made a real impact on me, this declaration that this filmmaker had just had fallen for that same glint of, you know, gold. Well, you know, I, I find that offensive, really, you know, and, and I hate that kind of admonitory, moralistic film criticism. You know, the, the, the whole point, it was obvious to me. I mean, you know, you're you're young compared to me, but that film only came out eight years ago. The world of Wall Street that it depicts, I don't see how that's any different. You know, the excess and the lunacy of that film are its whole reason for being, you know, if you if you reject that, you're just rejecting the film outright. The extreme qualities of the film are what make it are what make it true and also what make it make it into, you know, work of art. There's been a lot of films about Wall Street, like The Big Short and that in Margin Call. These films, all of The Big Short, I'm just glad that it existed. These films don't get to anything, really. I mean, they just tell you some information that some bad things happened at Wall Street, but they don't provide 
uh, any feel of what it's like, what it's like for the people that work there. The seduction of it, which is real. Yeah, yeah, the seduction of it, and also the stupidity of it. Well, the banality, really, the banality, the stupidity, the, I mean, it's so stupid. Jonah Hill in that movie is just like unbelievable. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not a respectable world, really. And, and you know, we're, let, we're led to believe in this country that the, the people that work in those areas are, are you know, geniuses and uh, they deserve all the money they make. And, you know, they should have the kind of power that they have. Through hard work and calculation. Are the people who wake up at 4 a.m. every day and make their to-do list or whatever, you know, those Forbes magazine or whatever articles you'll get once in a while that's saying that the trick is waking up at 4 a.m. to becoming a billionaire. And it's like actually waking up at 4 a.m. to do quaaludes. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Or, or, or whatever. To cheat on your wife, to steal from people, to, to lie to people that you're conning out of money that they earned. You know, um, so the the gross, the comedic aspects of that film, um, the excess of it, the great length of the film. Yeah, there there may be a lot of people that are in the audience who like that film because they want to be like those characters. But, you know, there's always people like that in, in any movie that can be made. The other thing about this movie that I remember, I remember watching it in like a packed multiplex um, in my hometown. And it was full of, you know, like young men or teenage and college age men who were like, hooting along and really just enjoying those spectacles of, you know, depravity and, and drugs and partying. And I think that contributed to my you know, initial distaste for the film, but it's also making me think about the ways in which a lot of American artifacts, pop cultural artifacts, get exported yes. and lose a, some of that context that makes them like it's sometimes more critical than than they received as and they might become part of then that whole machinery that all over the world is telling everyone that life in america is the best and the greatest and the most glamorous that's ironic right so i saw it in a packed house in the big theater at bam right when it right like you know we, the first week it came out you know i you know i was a paying customer i saw it and it was packed and probably half the people at bam were also young men who wanted to work on Wall Street who were, you know, who just thought it was the funniest, most amazing thing they'd ever seen. And that that's kind of built into the film, right? Those reactions don't concern me. The reactions that concern me more are the reactions of critics. The, the honest reaction of that audience is more, you know, is more real and meaningful to me. Because as Samuel Johnson said, no one is a liar in their pleasures. Uh, that's a paraphrase. I can't remember the exact quote now. And the film is just like depicting this depravity and is truthful, and this and this person, Jordan Belfort's experience of it in the most truthful way. Wolf of Wall Street also is definitely a movie with a lot of style, and that might I don't know if it. Tr I would say it doesn't transcend its subject matter with style, no. like, but it definitely it like heightens this. The style is like this is the subject maybe. Well, the style is the subject, Ooh. and it also. It, it, Mic drop. You know, it, it, the thing that's interesting about Wolf of Wall Street compared to like a Samuel Fuller movie or something, it's exuberant. It has all those things. You know, Scorsese is a significant auteur, of course. And yet the film mingles with its subject matter more than transcends it. So this is this is a this is a paradox in the film that the film can never overcome. So and that's one of the reasons that I included it. It never rises above the subject matter to say, like, this is bad. This is bad behavior. We need to change. Look, look forward. I mean, my the the movie ends with him like basically like 
unrepentant, but saying that he's changed and changed in a way that basically is another scam doing the same thing, like in a different, slightly different way. Yeah. And I remember what really stuck with me. And also, again, at that age, and I was very, uh, you know, uh, enamored of uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. And I just remember the movie's final image. And it's just him, like, you know, charming and glowing and just looking into the audience's eyes and, and those of the people gathered around him in, I don't remember what particular scam it was that he's hawking. Sell me this pen. Sell me this pen. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's teaching yeah, people yeah. how to become scammers. And again, it's, it's, it is that seduction, you know? I mean, you want to fall for it again. And it's, he, he seems glorious um, in that final scene. And I think that's what is maybe both the power of the film and why it can be difficult for people to maybe understand what it's doing. The soul of the film is located in the character of the FBI agent, who I believe was played by Kyle Chandler. Is that mm -hmm. right? I'm not sure. Yes, now. I think that's correct. And, you know, he has to go on DiCaprio's yacht and confront him, but he just leads a normal middle class existence. He has to take the subway to work. You know, we see him on the F train and there's some kind of like a uh, homeless person on the F train with him. There's some kind of situation on the F train that's kind of like gross. And DiCaprio like has that has that monologue where he just like let, rips into him for that and says like you could you could have this totally different life. Right. Why why don't you want to be like me? You know, why 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 do you think you're why why are you trying to be such a good person? You're listening to the Film Comment podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. I don't know if, if it's okay to veer off the sacred list, but... <laughs> what I'm interested in is like assigning a state to each one of the movies. <laughs> Or our colony, one of the 13 colonies. I thought about that, you know. <laughs> but maybe taking a ship elsewhere. Okay. You know, just talking about FBI agents and cops, I was saying uh, before we started recording that I love A Brother from Another Planet by John Sayles, and I was just rewatching it. If anyone hasn't seen it, which I hope most people have, you know, it's this literalization of an illegal alien. This guy literally drops into the earth in New York at the Ellis Island Immigration Center. Uh, and he's a black man and he's an alien. He has three toes, but otherwise re resembles a human. I believe he has a leg missing, right? When he lands too. Yeah, but he, he like... re we see it regrow. And that's how we know he has powers. And he's being hunted by these alien cops and there's a great minute you know moment in the movie when he's at uh, a museum where there's a display of the underground railroad and he points to an illustration of a slave being chased by a couple slave hunters and he says you know he points to it and points to it at himself because he's mute in the movie he can't speak and basically says that's me and I love that movie because a lot of science fiction is imperialist or interventionist and a lot of science fiction is concerned with imperialism, but rarely are the real victims of imperialism, you know, depicted in it. You know, it's often um, the countries that are actually committing, uh, you know, imperialism um, or interve intervention in the world that are like expressing their fear of invasion. 
And I yeah. love that the you know this movie actually like literalizes some of the ideas that that are very real in the world that were in the world in the 1980s when it was made still are. And so this guy basically learns how to be a human in Harlem and you know there's there's just great moments of him being taken in by this little community of folks uh, at a bar in Harlem and you know he can fix tools so he gets a job uh, and makes friends with this uh, Venezuelan guy who works uh, works at the same place and then he's given a room by this lady uh, you know whose husband just left so it's it's this great like colorful cast of characters but what I thought was really interesting watching it this time was, so the cops also come and take human form, right? The alien cops, they take human form and the alien, uh, the runaway alien cannot speak, but these guys can speak. Their speech is limited to TV and movie cliches of the things cops say. Yeah, right, right. right? And it's like this, it's so stilted and they just say things like, who are you? And they'll just say immigration, FBI. And it's, the things that law enforcement authorities, these buzzwords, these magic words that give them like access to everything, they can get away with anything if they just say these words or these sentences. And of course, because they're in Harlem, no one falls for it. They ask some guy for a green card and they get a lecture on who really built South Carolina. And they, you know, accuse someone of being illegal and get a lecture from a lady about how there's people are dying on the streets due to drugs. And this is what you're after. And they get sort of foiled in the end by the people of Harlem. It's really funny and cute, but it did make me think uh, about, again, the cliches that really get exported and what this movie is saying about the cliches that are comprehensible even to two alien police officers who've just landed there and the things that they immediately pick up on uh, about how to be in this world. Speaking of imperialism, uh, you know, the brother from another planet was, you know, you know, 10 years later essentially turn into the men in black movies where, where the, where the alien, there's still about illegal aliens. There's still about illegal aliens. And there's this clear mix of, um, you know, illegal aliens in this sense that we mean it, you know, in the news and uh, in the right wing means it and people from other planets who are posing as human beings in New York city. But there's like a, there's like a legal immigration system that they're using in that film. So yes. it's like they're triumphant. There's like this technocratic, like, system that that allows it to work there's a scene in a brother from another planet i again i didn't remember it until i rewatched it there's a scene where uh the runaway alien uh, the people at the bar that he's sort of taken into tell him there were two guys you know after you men in black and he points to his skin and they say no white skin black clothes that right. I thought was so funny. And it's, yeah, it's really presaging the Men in Black movies. And right. the, the and the, the FBI guys are played by John Sayles, right? Is one of them. And David, Stra yeah. David Strathern. Yeah. So, you know, last year I wrote a lot of things in the pandemic because I was just in my apartment, you know. And I, there's, a, there's a piece, I wrote a piece that mentions the brother from another planet about uh, Mate One, the John Sayles uh, movie. That's the booklet essay in the Criterion um uh, version of that movie. I guess I wrote that before the pandemic. And then I did a long piece on Barry Sonnenfeld and the Men in Black films for book form because of Barry Sonnenfeld's autobiography that came out. I don't know if you saw that or not, but I, you know, I talked about the, I talked about that too. But, you know, The Brother from Another Planet is kind of a happy movie, really, in a way. It's a very, it's even a kind it of, is. it's, it's a, utopic. It's even, yes, it's edifying. It's like an edifying movie, you know. 
And um, it's an optimistic film, really. He even foils the war on drugs. Like that's right, <laughs> right, right. But all the all the films I pick don't have any of those elements. That's not bleak enough for me. In, in today, okay, today, but this... isn't it worth it to hold on to these like possibilities of resistance? Well, you know, you're talking about cruel. You're, t- you're talking about cruel optimism. Then I am talking you know? about that is the cruel <laughs> optimism and, of and, the will. <laughs> and, and that's and that to me is not what the Fourth of July in 2021 is all about. You know, I, I want people to get real. You know, I mean, uh, of course, many people listening to this understand what's going on, and. Um, you know, I, I just I'm, I'm so tired of people retreating into the world of things like Paddington, too. You know, well, I've just I've just had it with this. It's, I haven't it's, seen it's Paddington, too, so to I don't want to. OK, well, God forbid you should say anything negative about Paddington, too, whether you've seen it or not. People getting the urge to see that should go see Bless Their Little Hearts or see Blue Velvet again or see Leave No Trace by Deborah Granick. Well, let's talk about let's talk about bless their little hearts a little bit because yeah, yeah. I haven't seen that in in a while. It's the saddest, most heartbreaking L.A. rebellion film. You know, the guy in it just walks away from everything at the end. It came out in 1984. You know, it was well into the Reagan era. Came out the same year as Stranger Than Paradise, which is in black and white too, and it has similar strategies in some ways to a film like that, but it's much more real and much more connected to the lives of the people in the film. It's not a hipster film, you know, at all. No. It's such a great film, you know. And I'm so glad that Milestone, you know, re-released it a, a couple of years ago. I'm not sure what year that was now. But, you know, it, it's such an amazing thing to see. It's hard to describe the the feeling of, of the film, but it's so connected to poverty and to all the bad things that happen to a family who just doesn't have any money at all. It opens with that scene of of the little girl like making dinner though for her for her family basically right yeah those are Charles Burnett's kids those two kids it does not have a hopeful ending at all it has a resigned ending it has a he kind of he kind of just chucks it all you know and walks away from the camera why should he live like that you know that's kind of the feeling at the end of the film why should I live like this why should I put up with any of this. But he has nowhere to go, really. Well, the scenes of his wife being mad at him because of lack of uh, ability to hold a job. He keeps getting these terrible menial jobs. And I mean, the scenes with his, the, the anger of his wife are just so uh, harsh and so heartbreaking. I think almost all, uh, or at least most of the movies we've talked about are city movies. They are also like L.A. or New York movies. I'm curious about some of your picks, Scott, that are about America, but not you know, this urban America. Well, I guess the only one, Blue Velvet is is not urban America, although it kind of is. And, Leave No um, Trace, Leave right? No Trace is really the one that isn't, yeah. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about Leave No Trace. I mean, I sort of get why that's a pick, but yeah, I'm also curious how it really fits into the, this picture that you've you've sketched for us. Leave No Trace is is really a great film from 2018. Deborah Granick directed it. And I don't understand why Deborah Granick doesn't make a film every year. You know, the, the, the system under which films are made in this country is so restrictive and prohibited that someone who's this good doesn't get to do more things. You know, I, in the last 10 years, she's made two features, I guess. The, the other is Winter's Bone with Jennifer Lawrence, which is also a bleak, dysfunctional American non-city feature, which is great. 
And I think you considered it was on your short list. I was trying to pick between those two, but... And also, we should just say this before you jump into it, that the plan was to pick a movie each. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... You were you were generous enough to make us a map. <laughs> I'm so disgusted with all, yeah. all you know <laughs> your enthusiasm for disgust. <laughs> ben Foster is great in this film, and 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 he's the father of a daughter who's about how old is she? About fourteen. They are homeless or houseless people who live in the woods in Oregon, I believe. You know, they they live off the grid. They live entirely off the grid, and you know he's a he's a vet of the of the war in Iraq. And they, they've got nothing. They're totally self-sufficient. They live in the woods. But, you know, the, they live in a state forest, I guess. They're discovered by hikers and they have to leave where, they're, they've, been li- where they've been living in the woods in this kind of lean-to environment. And they're put into a system where they're given a house. But the Ben Foster character has such PTSD that he can't really function in society. The girl, of course, wants to be more normal. And so there's a conflict between how the father and daughter want to live. But the way that the film, it's not, it's not like a Ken Loach film or something like that, although it kind of sounds like it a little bit. The way that his you know, reemergence in society is depicted in the film is just harrowing and terrible. You know, he, he, he essentially can't function. And uh, you know, no, one, no one will really help them. You know, you know some, some Christian group tries to give him a job but, you know, it doesn't really work out. They, they give them a place to live in, like on a tree farm. It, it has the most frightening depiction of working on a tree farm in any film. It's kind of a perfect film in doing what it does. And I don't think people paid that much attention to it in 2018, although the young actress got a lot of, got a lot of attention. Just the way it shows, you know, the world through the eyes of this person who has kind of had it with it is, is unique and in contemporary cinema. As you're talking about it, it's, it reminds me of a conversation I had on the previous Film Comment podcast about uh, James Benning's Two Cabins, which is a project that Benning did where he reconstructed the cabins of Thoreau and Kaczynski. And yes. Kaczynski. Uh, there's a film, Two Cabins, too, that's sort of a portrait of these two structures. It makes me think about this idea of the rural, like this the isolated rural American who kind of retreats from society. As you're describing, it definitely makes me think of this kind of this blend between Kaczynski and Thoreau and how that's part of like the American identity, really. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing. And I was thinking how, I don't know, it does seem like a distinctly American thing or part of, you know, uh, the American literature and this American subculture of survivalism and glorifying or not glorifying but this like reverence for for people who live off the grid it's obviously a response also to like the rapid spread of capitalism and yeah you know commercialization the the ben foster character in leave no trace is not technically speaking a survivalist or a prepper or anything like that he's a home he's homeless it's different he tells himself and he tells his daughter that they have made this choice to live this way. Similarly to how the the, the family in Kajillionaire tells themselves that they have made a choice to live this way. But these are not actual choices that people are making. These are things that they're forced into in some ways. And I think that's why it feels distinctly American because I think that is part of the American mythos that it is a choice you can make. That if you are, you know, that... This is something that people can desire or contrive for themselves the kinds of lifestyles that 
I think a lot of people in other parts of the world would never choose. Or you can make Americans tell, can tell stories about those lives that make it that make them seem as if their choices or make them seem as if they're right. Well, that's true. But but again, to be it's it's important in 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 discussing Leave No Trace to emphasize that it's not a, a film about the nobility of going off the grid. Right, right. No, of course. Yeah, no, it is. It's it's absolutely the opposite. Right. And it's about the this man who is in some ways relegated to that life and is not really offered a path back into functioning society. And it's all the more tragic because he is a war veteran. And we probably see people like that all the time on the streets. Well, it's also very American because in order for the, the young girl in it, to thrive and be part of society she has to separate herself from her father she, she can really no longer have a relationship with him if she wants to be you know a normal american what makes that what makes that american because america to me is a place where families are always kind of forcibly separated in order to make a living uh, or for, for a variety of reasons so yeah so that's why i picked leave no trace because it's not a new york or an la film it's 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 kind of like it's the woods, you know, mm. it's, it's America before America. Well, yeah. And the Benning, the Benning project in film is not romanticizing that either. I think Ted Kaczynski is not a romantic figure. I took someone on a date to see two cabins. Oh, yeah. How'd that go? <laughs> not well. It did not a, go yeah, well. As I said, it's not a romantic film. <laughs> no, no. Or maybe no. it went too well. You, you weeded uh, out. You know, no, no, the bad no, no. candidates. It just, it just uh, was not a fun movie to see in that context. And also, the it was presented at um, a space where a monograph on the film was being sold too. And the woman who wrote the uh, introduction to the film uh, in the book read the entire thing before the movie. The entire book, and it was the entire the entire introduction was about it was about thirty five pages long. It was it was deadly, man. It was something else. I'll never forget it. Well, neither will your date, probably. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Speaking of family separation, I did want to quickly shout out the a movie called Kelly Loves Tony from 1998. Scott, you said you'd never heard of it, so I want to make sure that I uh, give it some love. I wrote a little bit about it last year, and that's how I came you know, across it. It's by this director, uh, Spencer Nakasako, who made a series of films in the late 90s and early 2000s while working as a video instructor in after-school programs in the Bay Area among Asian American refugee and immigrant communities. So this is the second in a trilogy of films that he actually co-directed with the students that he was working with. So he would sort of train them in filmmaking and then he would hand them a video camera and have them like film the lives, their own lives, and then collaborate with them on the edit. So I'm just very fascinated by this sort of collaborative pedagogical you know, project. And then this particular film is about these two Laotian refugees, Kelly and Tony, when we first meet them, they're really young. Kelly has just graduated high school and they're about to get married and she's already pregnant. And so they're about to start a family. She really wants to go to college, but also now has to move in with Tony's extended family. They all live in a tiny house um, and basically figure out how to be a wife and a mother in addition to just, you know, being an adult person in this world and also wanting 
to, uh, you know, achieve all these professional dreams she has for herself. And Tony, who is also, you know, just a few years older than her, a pretty young guy, is dealing with some immigration trouble because he used to be involved in some gangs, some robberies or something like that. And there's some kind of rule where, you know, three strikes and you're out. So he's at risk of being deported because he's uh, close to basically amassing those strikes. And so it's like a short documentary and it's scenes of their lives and video diaries all filmed by Kelly and Tony themselves. And I don't know, I think there's uh, Kelly actually says in the movie that, you know, she wants to achieve the American dream. That's why she wants to go to college. She wants to work hard. She wants to build a life for her child. She's very dissatisfied throughout the movie with what her life has turned out to be. And I think what really struck me was that both Kelly and Tony and their families have ended up here directly because of America's role in East Asia, you know, during the Vietnam War. And Kelly's father actually, you know, died in the secret war uh, while, you know, fighting on behalf of the CIA. And then that turned her and her mother into refugees. And then they ended up here. And there's something so tragic about those being the circumstances that landed them here far away from their families and their home country and constantly living on the edge of precarity. It's a really small film. It's not really a film about anything, but just that kind of cyclical loop that they seem to be stuck in somehow symbolizes something much larger and bleaker for me. Well, I'll have to see that. I never heard about it, of it until you mentioned it on an email. As long as you tell it is bleak. I think he's in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah man. It, it I think sounds, it's bleak enough for you. It, no, it sounds it sounds really it sounds really interesting and it, it it's not the kind of film that you want to discuss trash humpers after describing. <laughs> oh no. I do want to hear you uh, talk about trash humpers though. I mean <laughs> I mean do we need to? <laughs> well, well Clinton, you said you wanted to talk about Born in Flames, which is a great film. What America means to me 4th of July type of movie. Well, I just finally watched it uh, last night. It was the last night it was on Criterion Channel, so if you want to watch it subscribers to the criterion channel you can't but i'm sure you can find it somewhere else and uh born in flames is a 1983 film by lizzie borden and it's it's not really science fiction but it takes place in a future in time 10 in america 10 years after a social democratic revolution to me as i was watching it i thought of it as like a remake an 80s or late 70s kind of no wave remake of robert kramer's ice kind of, or even like a mm. sequel. If the revolutionaries in ICE had, had actually like won, then maybe they would have instituted this kind of patriarchal, sexist, social democracy that the characters in Born in Flames are fighting against. It follows this group of women, the, the uh, Women's Army, as they attempt to organize labor, organize militantly at one point, and uh, take over the media in order to, you know, advocate for equal rights, equal employment in the society that supposedly, because it's a social democracy, provides all these opportunities for everybody equally. So it is a very angry and very punk 80s movie featuring the Red Crayola song Born in Flames sung by Lara Logic over and over and over again. And, and also, it's in color. And it's much more entertaining than ice. 
yes, it's not only in color, it's also sometimes in black and white. It's in video. Yes. It's like it's like music video aesthetic. I feel like that's a good genre of films too angry. It doesn't have to be just bleak, you know, it can be bleak and angry. <laughs> Well, yeah, that is a great combo, no question. It's bleak, but it's not entirely bleak because their effect because the government is that they're fighting against seems to be like a bunch of crusty old guys who are kind of fumbling and don't really know how to handle this women's army. It's not as light and funny as Brother from Another Planet, but I think it's definitely no. more of a uh, inspirational movie. A rousing movie, yeah. Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. The New York City in the New York, it's shot in the streets of the Lower East Side, right? right. Most. And you recognize corn. I mean, it looks almost the same other than the incredibly nice apartments that have been sprung up everywhere. It's a bleak New York City of the early 80s. It's not It's not a kind of happy-ish Harlem of brother from another planet. Well, you know, right. There's a real difference between those two films and the way they show New York. I don't know. I think that that also shows like that kind of like the the lively culture of the of the Lower East Side. And there's a pirate radio station and there's music playing and people are like having a good time in this kind of bleak Lower East Side. Yes, that's true. And organization as something that is very fulfilling and or organizing to be precise. Yeah. And it's definitely it's definitely angry, though. But uh, right. And it- it's good. It's good because it does have the elements of organ of political action, which Definitely. which all the films that I chose are like beyond. You know, there's that's not a thing in those films. It's too late in those films, mostly. You chose films from a pretty broad range of time, but I think like a lot of them are about individualism and that kind the kind of failure of that rugged individualism and that idea of America. Except for right. Trash Humpers, which does show organizing, and the power of organizing. And the power, yes, and that's another the kind power, of ger- the power ger- of solidarity. And it's also kind of a, a weird gerontocracy film. Definitely about, a weird gerontocracy. You know, film. So you know, the philosopher, the American philosopher George Santayana said that Americans love trash. It's not the trash that bothers him; it's the love. And Trash Humpers is a film that is explicitly about that because you know they they hump trash. It's just scene after scene of people. I mean, I don't know. Do we need to describe trash humpers? I feel like it's it's an institution. <laughs> it's, <laughs> its view of America is so. It's that it, that's also not an urban film, really. But it's it's well, it's, it's na- suburban. It's Nashville. Yeah, it's like an. I don't know what you call that space that it takes in. It's takes place in. It's exurban or something. It's like the place where ticks live, right? It's where ticks live along the edges of abandoned parking lots. Right, and like the, you, where people smash fluorescent light bulbs just for fun, over and over and over and over again. That film really describes America in a in a way that people should see. Well, we made it to Trash Humpers. We did, but also before the Devil Knows Your Dad and Ace in the Hole, and yeah. I don't know what else we left out. Stuck. We didn't get to talk about Stuck enough, or Wanda. You know, everybody knows Wanda now. Many of these could merit their own their own podcast. But I, I just want to say, I, I think that interest in stock is, is starting to grow. So someone should re-release that. Okay. You heard it here. Any distributor who's listening, come on, do this. Um, yes. Well, thank you for joining us, Scott. Thank you for having me. Uh, if you want Scott's full list of 13 movies, it will be in the show notes. So... If you didn't, if you didn't take notes while listening to the podcast, 
just go to the website. <laughs> Happy 4th of July. Happy 4th of July, y'all. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> All right. Bye. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. Thank you.